This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. I have been smashed on 5AA. Um, I've been personally attacked. What sticks in my craw is this chip on their shoulder. Some of the Adelaide media have about Melbourne media, that it's all about a Victorian media pylon. It's just extraordinary. Caro, not that journalists should ever feel vindicated because it is the job of people like yourself and Sam McClure to write about these things when you're on a hot story and it's not for you or Sam to be crowing this week, pardon the pun, but you both must have just shaken your head. You're the one that I want is the biggest selling duet of all time. Oh, really? Biggest ever. Bigger than I've got you, babe. Bigger than Islands in the Stream. (laughs) Bigger than Hey Hey Paula. (laughs) (laughs) And Lee Matthews, your co-panellist, said he loved the way Collingwood scunges the ball. (laughs) Do you remember scunge? I love it. I haven't heard it for years, since 1975, I reckon. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 230 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm with my friend and fellow podcaster, Corey Perkin. And there is a lot to talk about in this very special episode, Corey, on a sad day. I reckon another sad day for the Australian and international music industry and our Victorian community. It's very strange, Carol, isn't it, when you have the death of two legends, be they sporting or theatrical movie, in this case Australian music icons, Judith Durham died on the weekend. And as we record our podcast, you and I have just found out that awful news about Olivia Newton-John that um, that she has died all too early in LA. Yeah, we woke up we woke up to the news that um, Olivia had died at her ranch in California. Um, cancer, which she's been fighting for many, many years and to which she has contributed in terms of fundraising and community help and wellness, not only here in Victoria, but obviously in um, New South Wales as well, northern New South Wales, with her wellness centre there. She's just been an unbelievable Australian and international citizen and obviously put a, born in England but very much seen as a, a Melbourne girl where she went to school. I think she started at Christchurch. Christchurch in South Yarra, then went to Ormond College where her father, she lived at Ormond College where her father yep. was a professor. Sister of Rona who um, is also passed away and Hugh Newton-John, a fascinating family who in a sense we all feel as though we sort of grew up with and watched her life. I mean listening to Talkback Radio when the news broke about people who remember so clearly in the Melbourne scene, going out with Ian Turpey, um, sea Sp- Adventures of the Sea Spray, the musical shows she did. I remember her on The Happy Show with Happy Hammond, which was absolutely uh, the show that my brother and I watched. And so he being older than me, I must have started watching it when I was three or four. And I can actually vaguely, vaguely remember this beautiful young girl with this beautiful voice. And I thought she was so lovely. And then travelling over overseas, I think first to the UK with Pat Carroll, whose husband ended up writing so many of her hits and so many of the songs on Greece. Look, it's, it's terribly sad. She was far too young, only 73. Do you have a, a favourite song? I do. Ha- there, are, there are a few in her repertoire. I gather that... Um, 
she sang at one of the uh, Mardi Gras events in Sydney a few years ago. She sang Xanadu and it went off with the crowd, as you can imagine. I do love Xanadu, Xanadu. But the one that I think it reminds me or takes me back to my teenage self just so immediately is um, I Honestly Love You. So that was co-written by Peter Allen and I think um, Pat Carroll's husband. And uh, was it 1974 or 75? And love was in the air definitely in at my school, in my peer group. We all seemed to have boyfriends. We all went together on Saturday nights and kissed and snuggled. I don't really know why Olivia Newton-John was in the background, but she frequently was. And I just have such fond memories of I Honestly Love You, and I think it showed her the the, the uh, range of her beautiful voice. And Caro, she's... You know, when she, when she first cracked the US market, she was pigeonholed as a country and Western singer, a country singer. Well, that's where he sort of started, with the banks of the old high o Remember Ex- that? Oh, and, but Yet she, another number one. She just broke all – she defied pigeonholing. She she didn't really sit in any particular genre. When you think about Let's Get Physical, which was slightly raunchy post-Greece days, I just think that she was um, a remarkable person. But I have particular – a particular regard for Dame Olivia Newton-John because of her work that she did after her cancer diagnosis in her 40s. For the past 30 years, she has dedicated so much of her life uh, and raised so much money for cancer treatment and care of uh, particularly women who are struck down with breast cancer. So she's a, she's just a, a, an absolutely wonderful Australian and what a loss. I heard um, Alan Howe, the former newspaper editor, music critic, music aficionado, say that you're the one that I want is the biggest selling duet of all time. Oh, really? Biggest ever. Bigger than I've Got You, Babe. Wow. Bigger than Islands in the Stream. (laughs) Bigger than... um, Hey, hey, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vale, Ernie. Um, no, what about... Um, bigger than River, the Captain River, and Deep, mountain, Mountains White. It was the biggest ever. Bigger than, bigger wow. than Elton John and Kiki D. So, um, yeah, look, on, the, on paper, four Grammys, five number ones internationally, ten top tens. Um, she was actually in the same class as Daryl Braithwaite, I think, at Christchurch. I think that's right. Um, and I remember, I mean, there were so many Did songs. you ever interview her, Caro? No, but I met her a few times because, of course, um, myself and Anna from the op shop went to school with Fiona Goldsmith, Olivia's niece, and Fiona's younger sister, Caroline, Totty Goldsmith, who went on to be a musician herself. Um, and Fiona was a wonderful songwriter even at school. I remember her writing songs in grade six. But I still remember, and I'm sure I've told this story on the podcast before, when Sports Day in grade six Rona Newton-John, Fiona's mother, Flea's mother, turned up at Sports Day with Olivia and Johnny O'Keefe. Can you believe it? They came to our Sports Day. We were beside ourselves. And then, of course... For for younger potties, we have to explain how big Johnny O'Keefe was in our lives. He was just massive. Wasn't he? And he had a black leather jacket on. Jacket on. I still remember, you know, out there doing corner spry or tunnel ball or whatever. What I was he? <laughs> big and spoon race. What was his big hit again? The wild one. Oh yeah. But oh, oh, well, so many. So um, many. So tough. He was wonderful, yeah, Johnny. Okay, yeah, but anyway, was. um, 
so, and then, you know, through, I, I guess we all hung out together with the Goldsmith kids, Fiona, Brett and Tot, and um, Olivia was just often around. I remember having a semi-crack one day at Peanuts, which um, Brian Goldsmith, their father, rang, ran, Olivia's brother-in-law, and um, having a semi-crack at something Fiona was wearing, and Olivia was there with a girlfriend, and she looked at me and p- looked, picked, literally picked at my jeans and said... Are you joking? Like, it had a complete crack back at me. She was, um, look, she was just an enormous talent. I remember interviewing Pat Carroll, who became her business partner. Remember when they had a fashion label, Koala Blue? Yep. So she came out to Australia in the 80s to promote that, and I interviewed Pat. But uh, one little-known fact about Olivia Newton-John, of course, she came from a brilliant and academically gifted family. Her grandfather, um, her Jewish maternal, I think it was, grandfather, Max Bourne, uh, was a Nobel Prize-winning physicist. Yep. Did you know that? Yep, I, I did. I didn't know that till this morning. And um, wasn't either the father or the grandfather in MI5? M- a father. Father, mm. yep. And then Hugh's wife, of course, taught us at at school at Melbourne Girls Grammar. So um, the family was very much just part of the landscape anyway. Look, it's terribly sad, Corrie. Uh, Judith Durham's death was also terribly sad, Um I replayed her singing Georgia Girl at the 1994 Grand Final, and I still remember when she sang the national anthem there. She, her voice. Let's both... talk. Let's talk about her songs in a little while, Caro. I let's. think we should, I should uh, devote some time to that. Correspondence, though, before you kick off with a couple of uh, letters and emails, can I just uh, say that I, last week I forgot to mention Nick Martin, our channel swimmer, and give our podcast listeners an update. Nick Martin, of course, we had on the show a couple of weeks ago uh, and he was about to embark on his journey. He has swum the English Channel and he completed it, Caro, in an extraordinary 11 minutes, 22 seconds, which for a chap in their late 50s, possibly nudging 60, I'm not sure how old Nick is, that is a terrific effort. And I loved the photographs on his wife Julie's Instagram account account of him in the Le Fleur Hotel in Dover, which is the famous pub that everybody who's swum the channel goes to. And then, of course, they're asked to sign uh, sign their signature on a wall. So there's photos of Nick signing, you know, job done, well done, true blue. So he swam from Calais to Dover, no, not swelled, from Dover to no, Calais. No, well, swam from Dover to Calais. You touched the rocks and then he jumped back in the support boat and then came back. He, no, he didn't go back in Ford Caro. That would have been... Probably life-threatening. <laughs> that, that's pretty impressive. But, yeah, but um, as we said at the time, he was raising money for the Portsea Camp, which is a wonderful initiative down on the Mornington Peninsula for kids who can't often have a beach holiday. And it's sometimes for many kids, for rural kids and inner-city kids, it's their first experience at the beach. So it's a terrific initiative. And his goal is to raise $125,000. So far, he has raised $118,000 from his swim. And if you would like to give, just jump onto the Facebook page, Nick Martin, English Channel Swim, and you can give some money there. Um, so well done, Nick, and well done, Julie, his missus, who has had to put up with him swimming and wearing that fuzzy-wuzzy 
Buzzy, Buzzy, have you seen him in his dressing gown when I he have. comes out of the water? I have. It, it, oh, he looks like a really badly designed Yeti. But anyway, well appalling, done, guys. Appalling colour scheme, but no, Nick, congratulations. That is a wonderful achievement. Corrie, we, of course, we need to remind everyone about our movie night. It's next Tuesday, the 16th of August, kickoff at 5pm for a 5.30 start. It's at the Palace Como in South Yarra. The movie is Emma Thompson's Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. Leo Ground, and we would love to see you there. The link in the show notes to book or email, it's feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Miss Jane can assist you, and you'll be able to socially distance, we assure you, in the cinema. We'll be there to meet you. We'll be there to have a quick chat afterwards. You get a glass of wine. It's going to be a wonderful event, so we really look forward to um, seeing you all. Um, so Miss Jane put all those wedding photos on our social media last week, Corrie. Well, Caro, it, what would, a be, response. it, it would be fair to say that the younger Caroline Wilson and the younger Corrie Perkin actually received a lot of love. Uh, but, of course, the focus of it was your daughter Rose's magnificent wedding gown, which, of course, mirrored the one that you wore when you married Brendan in 1989. And um, so we had a series of family snaps there. And, um, yes, they have been particularly popular. And thank you, everybody, for all of those lovely comments that you made. We did get um, one negative um, piece of correspondence about your grumpiness, about the I am not a robot on social media. I was also criticised for saying I now go to Chrome. I was reminded that Chrome is part of Google. The point about going to Chrome, dear listener, is that you don't have to do the I I capture business. That's why it's quite refreshing. Well, the other thing too, to our listener, uh, thank you for her email too. We, we always, as Carol and I always say, we appreciate the brickbats and the bouquets. Uh, my point, I think, about raising it three years after first raising it in the podcast was the fact that nothing has changed and indeed the quality of those photographs of <laughs> spot the chimney, spot the bicycle, spot the lorry rather than truck. Uh, it, nothing has improved, Carol, in three years. So that was kind of my point as well. I knew that I had mentioned it a couple of years ago. I'm sorry to sound like I'm a techno dinosaur, but I just would have thought that they would find a better. And, and believe me, listener, I am completely with you. These are important security measures, and I agree. I'm not a robot is a great idea, but let's just have uh, a better photographer. <laughs> or just go to Chrome, even though it's owned by Google. They don't, you don't have to do the eye capture. So, Corrie, um, after we recorded last week's podcast, Eddie Betts's book was released. And um, the look, some of the excerpts from the book were published that day in The Age. It was horrifying reading. It... Um, There's some wonderful stuff in Eddie's autobiography, which he's written through a series of interviews with um, Ali Clark, whose husband, Matt, he's an Adelaide media personality, someone I'm not close to, but I'm a great admirer of. Ali's husband, Matt, is actually a coach at the Crows, was involved in the camp and coaches the AFLW team at Adelaide, is the reigning premiership coach, in fact. So, it's an interesting dichotomy going on at that football club, but I, th- I think the the lead item out of that story is that it is revealed and laid bare just how horrifying some of the treatment of players was on that camp, how player welfare was completely abused, and how all the defences and the denials that came out of Adelaide for so long now seem very, very hollow. 
Well, Carol, as you say, there's a lot to Eddie Betts' memoir. It is terrific. Uh, I commend him and Ali Clark on a terrific job and people who have been preoccupied with this story about the Adelaide Crows. Remember, this is one part of an extraordinary life journey thus far of Eddie Betts. So the book is well worth a read. But, Caro, not that journalists should ever feel vindicated because it is the job of people like yourself and Sam McClure to write about these things when you're on a hot story and contact after contact is telling you off the record that this is what's happened uh, and you write from a premise of truth and a foundation of truth. It's not for you or Sam to be crowing this week, pardon the pun, but really uh, you must have you, you both must have just shaken your heads with what an extraordinary outcome this story suddenly is public, the story that you and Sam talked about and broke a couple of years ago um, after the training camp in Early 2018, I think it was. It was. It? it was after they lost to Richmond yeah, and they, and, just, and you they guys, lost the unlosable grand final. That's right. And you guys heard about it a couple of years later and started writing about it. And no, we wrote about it at the time. We didn't We didn't actually break the story. Funnily enough, Danny Frawley broke the story one day with some the late, great Danny Frawley on SEN with some not completely accurate detail about the camp. But then Tom Morris at Fox Footy broke the story. But um, I started writing about it very shortly afterwards because I went to Taylor Walker, the cap- Adelaide, then Adelaide captain's house, and he told me how unhappy some of the Indigenous players had been as a result of the camp. But wrote about it, yes, for the next few years, was muzzled due well, to been, a, you were a, you a legal were a, situation. And you were attacked by the Adelaide media. I'm glad to see that you've been able to answer some of your critics over the weekend. Well, I, th- I think that... You know, it's funny, the problem with some sections of the Adelaide media and, you know, I I work on 5AA, I really enjoy working with Stephen Rowe, my on-air partner. He's a passionate Adelaide Crows man, but has been critical of the Crows in the past. He, you know, was very strong on the camp for a long time, but but after WorkSafe SA investigated what went on and cleared them of any wrongdoing, which I still find just bizarre... um, he became very much an aficionado of the story that we'd all been duped and lied to and the camp was fine. So we had a lot, we had a lot of arguments. I have been smashed on 5AA. Um, I've been personally attacked. And, you know, really, that's neither here nor there. But what stands, sticks in my craw is this some um, chip on their shoulder some of the Adelaide media have about the Victorian, Melbourne media, that it's all about a Victorian media pile on. Graham Corns is one. It's just extraordinary. This happened at the Richmond Football Club or the West Coast Football Club or the Sydney Football Club. It would have been... Well, dare I refer them to your coverage of Essendon eight, ten years ago. But it's also disappointing because after Essendon, the AFL mandated integrity officers at every AFL club. Well, this camp was not... Matt Clark, husband of Ali Clark, I think was the integrity officer. My understanding is it was never run past him. He was never across what was going to happen, even though, according to many now, um, the club was told. The club was told what was going to happen. In Graham Corns' article, it says the board or football bosses were aware of what was going to happen. For the AFL to say player welfare is their top order priority and to have heard what went on, and Eddie Betson has now revealed, and Josh Jenkins in his wake, that they told the AFL Integrity Investigation everything that is is in Eddie Betts' book and more. For the AFL to say that there were no rules to sanction Adelaide is just ridiculous. And, you know, Gillan McLaughlin really has not covered himself in glory in this story. To Again. do a, a stand-up 
apology with, with Channel 7. That was his first sort of point of contact last week and say he apologised and it, it was disgraceful. I don't even know if he... He really, I think the apology was slightly mitigated, but he said what happened was disgraceful. He needed to do a press conference. The AFL needed to confront this issue, and they didn't. I agree, Carol. And the other organisation too, although you have pointed out in your articles and your commentary, on-air commentary, that they weren't, they, they asked questions but they weren't aware or told the truth, is the Players Association. Why, what did they ask and why... Why were they fobbed off? I don't understand if the Players Association, the formal body representing the players, hears these complaints and approaches the Adelaide Crows. What happened in the communication? Well, Who, it, who's, who's not telling the truth here? This is a rare story where, in fact, it was the media that was doing all the running. Because the players... Which in itself actually is a disgrace, isn't it? I well, mean, good, I guess, good on the media, but really, that's if, you're their involved, role. if you're involved that's in their player role. welfare, AFL Players Association, they all should have been climbing all over it. I had many conversations with Paul Marsh about this and urged him to investigate and told him what I'd been Paul hearing. Marsh is? The, uh, sorry, the CEO of the Players Union, the Players Association. And look... I, I believe that they were shocked by Eddie Betts' revelations. I believe they didn't know. So the AFL integrity investigation, there was no communication between the AFL and the PA. Um, the defence is there that this was all confidential, but I don't understand why they've they've formed a joint partnership, the AFL and the Players Association with player welfare, putting mental health and co you know, funding doctors now working full time at the AFL in this area. How they didn't know. Um Josh Jenkins said he kept urging the AFLPA to dig deeper. Well, the AFLPA would say that they questioned Josh again and again and again, and he wouldn't tell them what happened. So I have some sympathy for them there. Now, Josh is... Sorry to interrupt. Did the Players Association approach the organisation who were in charge of the training camp? No, their, their role was to question the players, and the players weren't prepared to go public or... They could, they, I don't know why they didn't tell the Players Association what happened. It shows that the, the relationship is not strong enough. It shows that the PA probably could have got some Indigenous mediators involved, as the AFL could have. My understanding is no Indigenous representation was part of the integrity investigation or with Workplace WorkSafe South Australia or with the Players Association. So maybe that would have helped. Maybe Eddie Betts would have felt more comfortable and a couple of the other Indigenous players who left the club very soon afterwards, partly because of the camp, maybe that would have helped. But, you know, the view of the players at the time was we didn't want to blow up our own, we didn't want to burn our own house down. So very complex, very difficult. The club, you know, and, and the club was telling the players and um, I think Scott Camperiali, one of the coaches who loved the camp and who stuck up for the camp at the time and was a real Don Pike, Brett Burton aficionado, he said that he's still bound by in non-disclosure agreements. I mean, it's just madness what, what happened. Anyway, very, very sad story. I don't think the AFL should get off scot-free in this. The only person really of any authority left at the club is the football director, the football board member, Mark Rusciuto. He's been smashed by his very flimsy response to it in the last week and by his denials earlier on. So um, whether this is going to cost him his place on the board, it could finally be the thing that does, but he's digging, digging in. Well, as you said in your column in The Age on Saturday, it really does yet again raise the question uh, for parents who have potential or current young AFL stars, what trust you put in a club and 
how that can be so easily let down and the apologies, as you say, across the board are relatively flimsy. For me, the question is also about the age and its role in the litigation and its support of yourself and Sam McClure uh, and the fact that Sam McClure's, the Melbourne Press Club, decided earlier this year that they should take away Sam McClure's quill. Uh, there's a, there are a whole led, lot of questions Led by there. a News Limited boss, it must be said. that that And, and it was overturned. But it, it did not it, reflect well on the MP Melbourne Press Club. It did not Club. reflect well on the Melbourne Press Club, and it and it was uh, and it was sad for Sam. You know, it was sad for Sam to have that cloud uh, over him. But it's, anyway, it was very very difficult. It's been a for hard Sam story McClure. for you, and all. Um, it's a pity that, as the Age revealed, you know, as they wrote at the end of my column on Saturday, that it was a commercial decision, and I hope that that doesn't happen again. Mm, and, and, you know, the age would be disappointed that the players weren't prepared to say to their lawyers what they've now come out and said. Very, very complex. But Yeah, but the old rule of journalism and newspapers, Caro, is you back your reporters. You you back your reporters right through to the court law, you know, court law, law courts. Do we need a drink, Corrie? Oh, please. <laughs> Where's Miles and my whiskey? It's time for the cocktail cabinet brought to us by Prince Wine Store. It's time to welcome Miles Thompson. And this week, Corrie, we're going to ask what is in your hip flask. Are we trying to stay warm? Are we trying to play better golf? Yes, and yes. Fortified on a long walk? I'll be absolutely fascinated. We should also mention that there was a double pass to the introductory wine course hosted by Prince Wine Store. We want to hear about your best wine adventure or experience to win two spots at the introductory wine course. Link to enter is in our show notes. Miles Thompson, as we welcome you, we need to announce that uh, Stephen Mychek is our winner this week to that introductory wine course at Prince Wine Store. Corrie, an overwhelming response to our competition. We're thrilled. Keep them coming, guys. Stephen writes his best experience was on a work trip in the Hunter Valley. He went to McWilliams Estate to get a couple of bottles. As he had a couple of hours before a flight, he wasn't in a rush. This is Stephen. The cellar door was managed by the winemaker, and he spoke to me for a couple of hours discussing each region, what they did best, and whose wine was the best from each region. I learned more that day than ever before. Well done, Stephen Mike Check, and welcome, Miles. Great to have you on board as ever. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. You've got a bit of a busy day there, Miles. I, I gather. Uh, but we are oh, talking. We are I talking. Uh, what's in my hip flask? So I hope you're not too busy to help me with my little hip flask that no, might be in my I, golf bag, or might be in my ski gear, or might be in my walking jacket. What have I? What do I have inside my hip flask? Yeah. Well, I've got a, I've got a couple of options. The the first one is the um, Morris. Uh, whiskey, so Australian whiskey. So Morris is a is a producer up in Rutherglen, probably famous for. Well, I'm sure everyone knows them, or if they don't, they're most famous for their fortified wines, muskets and topates and things like that. But they hired a consultant um, out of Scotland to come, uh, basically make a Australian whiskey for them. So he's a super duper. Uh, sort of knowledgeable whiskey guy. He's come over. They obviously have this incredible selection of these beautiful old musket barrels and topaque barrels, which are perfect for aging whiskey in. And that's what they've done. So they've got a, a barrel blend and they've got um, a musket barrel finish as well. And these, these are so awesome. They're 
such great value for, for what they are. And, you know, using, you know, some of the best sort of Rutherglen barrels to, to finish these whiskies, they're just such a great product. Oh, that sounds too good for a hip flask. <laughs> sounds perfect for a cold, uh, cold wintry afternoon at the MCG. Oh, I guess you're not really meant to take Absolutely. You are well. not. If you want to break the law, you can. And anything else in your little kit bag there? Yeah, and then the other one, it's just it's probably like a bit, a bit of a personal favourite of mine. Um, it's a producer out of Kentucky called Willett. Um, and it's just, and it's called their Johnny Drum Bourbon. So it's just they have a couple of different bottlings, um, and this is one of their sort of, I guess, like their estate bottling, you would sort of call it. Um, and it's a bourbon, but it's not uh, maybe it's not as super sort of sweet and rich as some of the, you know, some of the bourbons that you might be more familiar with, like say Maker's Mark or something like that. Um, it's a little bit more on the sort of dry side. It's a little bit more delicate and elegant but a really fantastic bourbon. I always think bourbon in a hip flask because it has a little bit of that sweetness bourbon. Mm. Um, so I think for, for a straight it on up its own. thing. Yep, yep. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Hey, Miles. Exactly. Uh, so I think bourbon's great for that. So A couple of visits ago to Prince Wine Store here in South Melbourne, I picked up a bottle of, I don't know whether you pronounce it, Koval or Koval rye whiskey. Koval. Yes. Yeah. Still got a tiny bit left in the bottle. That's a terrific whiskey. It's funny you say it because I was I was looking at the Covales going oh maybe I should talk about those lots of great we're really lucky here we've got lots of great stuff yeah they're fantastic they've they've been around for a little while now but they were sort of new on the scene you know you know a few decades ago and really sort of they're quite known for being very technically sort of minded very modern equipment and that sort of thing they make fantastic their whiskies their rice their bourbons they're all excellent I could definitely suggest any of those if people are interested in those types of spirits. Uh, Coval are, are definitely a pretty safe bet. Miles, how much will the bourbon you recommended set us back? So the bourbon is 125 mm-hmm. um, and the, there's two there's the, so the, the, the blend from Morris and the musket barrel. I prefer the musket barrel. I love that sort of whiskey that's finished in, you know, PX barrels or those sweet sort of sherry barrels. That's what I sort of head towards. So that's 135, but their blended whiskey, which is also fantastic, is I think 93. So for under $100 and just over for Australian whiskey, there's not a lot around and certainly not of this quality. That's fabulous. So um, the the Kentucky 125 <clears throat> and the Morris whiskey and the Morris whiskey from the Rutherglen, Glen 135, but for the blended 93 dollars. And how 93. do people how do people jump on this amazing offer? Right, we'll just go to the website, which is www.princewinestore.com.au. You can follow the links to the Don't Shoot the Messenger page. The products will be up there. And, of course, put in your code MEWS and you will get 10% off your cart. Miles, get to work. Wonderful recommendations. Great to talk to you again. And we look forward Absolutely. to reading your entries to win the um, a spot, well, two spots, in fact, to the Prince Wine Store introductory wine course, which we're giving away on the podcast every week. And Miles, if I don't shoot thirty eight with one of those whiskies or bourbons in my hip flask, I'm going to blame you. Okay? Absolutely. Well, that's the secret, isn't it? Like you know, for anyone who plays golf, and you know, you just got to be a little bit relaxed, and uh, I'm sure it's going to help. <laughs> 
That was Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store. And we'll talk to you next week again on the Cocktail Cabinet. Corrie, time now for BSF. You are going to kick us off this week with a book. I am, Caro. It's a Look, I'm holding it up to the camera and it is a very small book and it's called Small Things Like These by Irish writer Claire Keegan. Claire is uh, a, a middle, middle-aged middle uh, Irish writer. There's uh, there, are, there are long gaps between her books, Caro. She's written about four or five and the most recent one was 11 years ago. So great excitement when Claire's book, Small Things Like These, arrived on bookshelves late last year. And I'm delighted to say that last week it was announced as a long lister on the 2022 Booker Prize list. So hopefully it'll get through to the shortlist because I'm a real fan of this book. Really good one for book clubs too, I might add. So it's uh, it's set in a small uh, Irish town in 1985. Bill Furlong is a coal merchant. He's a family man. He's a father of five daughters, happily married. And this story takes place over a couple of days, the busiest time of his year of course is just as winter and the snow settles in and Christmas is upon us and Bill is delivering coal all over town and we follow him on his rounds and it's a beautiful backward and forward in time we learn that Bill was the son of an unmarried girl. She was a lady's maid when she became pregnant and her employer decided all those years ago to keep her on and raised Bill not so much as her own son, but certainly added uh, financially supported him through his education and so on. And Bill, uh, as he as he is delivering coal to all of the people in the village, is reflecting on how lucky he was to have a benefactor um, because he was able to start his own business and so on. Um, even now, though, as a man in his forties, happily married, it remains a hole in his heart that he a gap in in his understanding of himself that he never knew his father. He never knew who his father was. And while delivering the coal one day, uh, he makes an unexpected discovery that triggers his memories and prompts him to question further uh, his background, his life, his mother's life as a young woman when she found out she was pregnant and essentially abandoned by her family. Um, and the power of, of the Catholic Church over a very conservative village. Um I won't give anything away except to say that this is a story of huge compassion and empathy. Bill is a beautiful character. Carol, it won't surprise you that the nuns and the church don't come off all that well in this story. Um, But And I have to say that this is not Nanata's house that we're talking about in Call the Midwife. There are no cups of tea with chummy... um, no, no nice cake. No nice cake. And no, at the end of the day, getting all together with the with the nuns. This is a harsh reality of uh, of convent life. But look, it is a terrific book. As I said, it's a small book. It is the shortest book to be recognised in the history of the Booker Prize in its long list. And the judges called it a story of quiet bravery set in an Irish community in denial of its central secret beautiful, clear, economic writing and an elegant structure dense with moral themes. Can I just say to anybody who's who's writing fiction out there that if you want to learn how to write, uh, take note of Claire Keegan. Caro, she uses adjectives sparingly and every sentence is perfectly, perfectly balanced. Rhythm, 
beauty. I, I just I can't rave more highly about this beautiful little book. So that's small things like these. Um, now, screen. Well, we've both watched. Um, I watched on your recommendation, Persuasion, the latest rendition of the famous Jane Austen story on Netflix, starring Melanie Griffith and John Don Johnson's daughter, Dakota, who I saw most recently in The Lost Daughter. She, I think she was also in the Fifty Shades of Grey series, which I've never seen. But she she's, has huge charisma, doesn't she? Oh, she's brilliant in The Lost <coughs> Daughter. An unusual sort of – it's not a modern adaptation of Persuasion in that it's set – Back in the um, well, I suppose 19th, eighth, early nineteenth century. Early nineteenth mm-hmm. century. Um, the last one I saw of that was a very grim rendition, starring Corin Redgrave, but a very good one. This this was fascinating. I, I don't know how it went off with the critics because I watched it at your recommendation. I started watching it on Wednesday, late, late, late Wednesday night. Finished it on Thursday night. I really enjoyed it. I thought she, you know, completely carried it. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. There's been a worldwide movement among Jane Austen fans to absolutely slam this. Because of the modern language? The modern language. The yep. modern language. They're very offended. And look, it's not jarring. It pops up. You're aware of it. This is not a this is not a period piece, even though, as you said, the costuming, the setting, beautiful scenes of Bath, which they try and recreate as and lime. the perfect night. Yeah, the perfect nineteenth century villages. Just so beautiful. Uh, Dakota Johnson, as you said, as Anne Elliot, is terrific. And I and I do love the Anne Elliot character because she's yet again Jane Austen visiting the themes of, well, in this case, a woman left on the shelf, although she put herself there because she was engaged seven years earlier to the rather lovely uh, Frederick Wentworth. Who was who just had a humble background, and he was a soldier, and, and she was persuaded. Well, he was a sailor, really. A naval, yeah, yes, naval, naval, man. naval. She sorry, was persuaded yes. to dump him because he didn't have good prospects. Exactly right, and and as we um, venture into the Elliot family, we can understand why because the rather eccentric, domineering character is Sir Walter Elliot, Anne's father, who's played terrifically by Richard E. Grant in this um, in this. But he's he's vain, he's self-absorbed, he's an absolute social climber, which I think Richard E. Grant does really well. I, I think the, another criticism would I can imagine because it was almost a parody. The characters are almost a parody of the way they were initially portrayed by Jane Austen. I mean, it shows yet again just how her stories translate to modern life so well. They really, really do. It um, and the, the sisters are brilliant. The sisters-in-law are brilliant. Um, is it Henry Golding? who plays the slight bad egg cousin who emerges on the scene. Yes. He was in um, Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, very and, um, good looking. Last Christmas. Yeah, look, I, I found it just a, a thoroughly enjoyable, quite shallow rendition, I've got to say, of Jane Austen. I didn't mind the fact that Anne communicates with the audience. You know, a, a the bit, old talking to camera. Yes, a slight Phoebe yes, well, Waller th- Bridge vibe, wasn't it? Really, <laughs> it was, and, I, and, also, and I think Jane Austen fans are up in arms about that too. But it has all of the all of the things that we we know and love about a Jane Austen novel: class difference, inheritance, uh, families of girls who are clearly going to be turfed out of the house once uh, the father dies, um, and unacknowledged love. Yes, look, I mean, I suppose if it, all of that, and if anything disappointed me. It's all rather wrapped up and resolved very quickly. I agree. I thought like, the ending was a bit underwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I started watching it. You said, I, I thought it was a six-part series. So 
about an hour in, I went, oh, no, this is clearly a, a movie, like a telly movie. So I didn't want to stay up any later. So I saved it for the next night. And it just, you know, the next night it was bang, 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 and it was all over. <laughs> Every, tied up, wrapped up in a neat bow, rather too quickly well, for mine. That, and I think that is the point of some of some of the the Jane Austen fans, and certainly the reviews that I have seen, that people really thought this story because it's Persuasion is not one of her better known novels. Um, certainly, in terms of popular culture, it's not like Pride and Prejudice that, that's been made so many times over and over again. But people would have loved to have seen this or Sense extended, and Sensibility, yes, which we you and I love. But and um, what was the Matchmaker one? That oh, was, Emma. Emma, I mean that that has been made modern. It's been made old. It, it's it's an ongoing theme, and, yeah. and but I think people would have loved to have seen more of an exploration of the nuances of the Jane Austen novel and seen it as you said over four or six parts. But yes, it's sumptuous viewing. It's on, as Kara said, on and off pretty quickly on the one session or the one night on Netflix. Persuasion. Now, Corey, I've revisited for um, F, which is for food this week. Now I'm back in the kitchen. Um, that wonderful book, In Praise of Vegetables. By, oh, by Alice in Alice. Frames, yes. She's um, Zaslavsky. That's it. Um, she is just, if you've got leftover veggies in the fridge, seriously, if you've got this book, Ned and Zoe, my son and his partner who've moved overseas, um, bequeathed me a couple of their cookbooks. This is just the most wonderful cookbook. Um, I'm, you might remember I did the Brussels sprouts recipe shortly before I went away. Well, now I've um, done their buttered nut squash with sage and black olive. Um, it's what a great combo. Oh, look, it, it's I had a it, it's a butternut pumpkin basically. It comes she colour codes all of the book. So there's green, there's dark green, there's red, there's white vegetables, there's orange, there's yellow. So no surprises that this will come under the orange section. And there's squash section and a pumpkin section. She puts this in squash, but I would call it a butternut pumpkin. It is the easiest and most delicious recipe. I've, I've got to say, I really, really recommend it. You can roast the pumpkin a day ahead, and then if you're doing a fancy dinner, it's an easy thing to finish. So, you, so you're cutting it into big chunks or halving you it? You cut or? it in half. You cut it in half down the middle and basically de-seed it. All you need is a teaspoon of brown sugar. He recommends muscovado, muscovado, but I just use normal brown. Salt flakes, olive oil. Um, she says macadamia nuts, but I had hazelnuts and I thought they worked brilliantly. Um, but she says use any nuts. Butter, kalamata olives, which she says you can substitute anchovies if you don't have black olives, and a handful of fresh sage. Well, that was a key for me. I had the pumpkin. I had heaps of sage needing to be deadheaded in the garden. And basically what you do is you just mix up the a paste of brown sugar, salt and olive oil and rub it all over the pumpkin, the, the cut side, after you've de-seeded it, so there's a hole, rub it all through the hole, mix it in the hole, put it in both holes, rub it over both. Her thing with um, baking vegetables is she wants the baking tray left in the oven while the oven's preheating. So you pull out the really hot oh, okay. baking tray, okay. you put That's in interesting. and you quickly put on, put on some baking paper, um, put a bit of olive oil, a bit of a well of olive oil, turn the pumpkin upside down with all the sugary, salty mixture. Bake it for 40, 50 minutes, and then while that's been the last 15 minutes, you basically fry up in butter, a lot of butter, and a little bit of olive oil, the nuts, and then you after you've done the nuts, and my hazelnuts were already roasted and chopped up. You've got to chop them slightly. The nuts, 
the um, olives, olives and the sage. And you wait Beautiful. till the sage, Chris, and you add that at the very end. Now, oh, so you're cooking the sage as well? Yes. Yeah, so, oh, and, that'd and, be delicious. And then you garnish it with a bit of extra sage if you want to, to make it look fancy. But that could be a dinner, like half a small pumpkin each with a salad. It says it serves six to four if you've got a big butternut pumpkin. I didn't. I had a little one. Um we did it with a whole lot of other veg, and it was absolutely delicious. But um, you could do it as a side. Great for a dinner party. Sounds great. So um, that will be in our show notes, Corrie, and um, that was BSF for Red Energy. It's a great book, that one, and I have, for years I've been looking at it. I must uh, I must buy it now that we're eating more vegetables, now that I have to have my 30 vegetable, different vegetables a week. Well, it's good because it's not <laughs> – I mean, It adds up. I mean, it, look, it does add up if you're because the doctor said I was allowed to use herbs, so sage I can include that and the pumpkin and... Could you count olives? Not really. No, no, no. It, look, it, it really works um, as a cookbook because even though it's in praise of vegetables, it, it has meat dishes in it or vegetables to go with meat dishes. Um, but so I'd highly recommend Great. it. Great. So, now, um, after we've had our pumpkin... I just want to say that BSF was um, sponsored by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. If you want to call Red Energy, and you should, the number is 131806. Sorry, Caro. Sorry, sorry, Red Energy. <laughs> Caro, you're grumpy. What are you grumpy about today? Well, being interrupted by you, but I do Sorry. it to you all the time, Sorry, so no, I can't no, there, speak. There are a couple of potties out there who get really cross when I interrupt you. Um, what made me grumpy in the last week was losing my voice. I, I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer. <laughs> How there reliant might be some family members who go, oh, thank God. How <laughs> reliant we are on our voices. The day that the Adelaide Crows and the Eddie Betts revelation story broke, I had to go on footy classified that night. I couldn't speak. I had been, I'd come home from overseas with a bit of a throat, did the podcast with you, did footy classified, did an age podcast, the age of footy podcast. By Wednesday, I don't know what had happened. It's still not back to quite normal. Um, I honestly couldn't speak. So I, I didn't really speak all of Wednesday, which meant I couldn't call people, which I always do to make calls, to, you know, get stories for the show, for my column, for my general everyday football commentary. Couldn't really talk to people. And when I did, it was all about, oh, you sound terrible. So were you texting people saying, I'm sorry, I've lost my voice? All of that. So text messaging helps. But going into Channel 9, did the did the makeup, put on a nice outfit, Went upstairs. I said, look, I honestly don't think I can do this show. And Sam McClure was on standby. And Matthew Lloyd, who's a realist, said, yeah, you don't sound too good. I, I, I think I'm not, not sure if this is going to work. Eddie Maguire and Ross Lyon were like, push through, do one segment, because we need your take on what's what Eddie Betts has revealed. I did one segment. It was agonising, and I don't think it was terrific in, TV. In what way agonising? Were you coughing, or was it? Oh, it was just so hard to get the words out, and you're passionate oh. about your subject, and you can't translate it into you know verbal opinion. It was just really, really difficult. So I drove home How after frustrating one you, segment. For you not I slunk out of the studio with my tail between my legs. In very, a nice frock with makeup. Very, very um, concerned messages from members of the football community. Sort of no one saying, a few people from the show said, well done, you push through, brave effort. But externally it was like, oh dear, is everything all right? So that made me really grumpy, Corrie. And um, 
thank heavens I've got my voice back and I'm so sympathetic to people who have ongoing vocal issues. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible affliction. Carol, we are hearing this a lot at the moment, this winter of discontent with illness, that a number of people who, it even happened with my own kids who have just recently been on holiday and you come back and you've caught something on the plane or there's something dormant in your system that you've brought back from overseas and you have to get back to work, you want to get back to work and all of a sudden you're either testing positive for COVID or you're losing your voice in your case or whatever it may be and then to have to tell the office or your boss, by the way, I'm at home, I'm sick. Mm, it's hard, isn't it? I know. <laughs> it's I know, but, really hard. but there are a lot of things when you're sick you can sort of push through and work from home as dear Miss Jane is doing today because... Oh, Jane, sending our love to you. Jane is not well this week, Potties. We're missing her, but we have the lovely Steve with us today. And she's a trooper, Miss Jane, because she's still helping out. Anyway, that was why I was grumpy. Corrie, it's time for six quick questions for Red Energy. I'm going to kick it off and ask you what your favourite Seekers song is. My favourite Seekers song is this one. And my I just think the carnival is over. is is a is, is such a beautiful song. I always, I actually always become quite cheery when I hear it. There are a couple of weird little lines in it, like, "But the joy of love is fleeting," for Pierre and Pierre Pierrot and Columbine, which yep. modern audiences well, might it's not a, know. It's who a Russian. They are. It's actually a Russian song, isn't it? I didn't know Originally, that. Yeah. I didn't know that. But say goodbye, my own true lover. Oh. Judith. It was a beautiful song. I, my question to you is, should Judith Durham receive a state funeral? Of course. And she is going to receive one. I mean, the um, I, I would imagine the government's got a bit of um, fund, funding required on its plate at the moment because Johnny Famishon is getting a state funeral. I'm not sure as we broadcast this podcast whether Olivia Newton-John's family will accept the offer of a state funeral, but I would imagine... If that is, I mean, I know she lived in America. She was born in England. but There might be a memorial of some did, sort. Did so much work in, in Victoria. So that could happen as well. But, you know, Michael Gadinsky deservedly got a state funeral. But if Michael Gadinsky gets a state funeral, of course Judith Durham should. I hope it's at the Maya Music Bowl. I hope it's a musical tribute. I, I went to that Music for the People concert that is still in the Guinness Book of Records for the biggest outdoor attendance of a concert ever in the world. And I just really, really hope that that's where we go to remember Judith Durham. Corrie, how many books have you packed for your Byron Bay holiday? Are you getting excited? Mm, I have. The first thing I always do is I get the books organised. So I started with 15 on the weekend. 15, Caro, a stack and my kids are saying, oh, you should just have walk-on hand luggage. Don't don't take suitcases. You'll probably lose it. And I thought, oh, the books need a suitcase to themselves. I've whittled it down to nine. Nine? How long are you going for? A week. That's no, I know. No, it is story. ridiculous. And look, it is ridiculous. This happens to me every time I go away. I'll whittle around it down again. I do have Geraldine Brooks's horse. I went to hear her speak at the wonderful Montalto Winery, a Wheeler Centre event a couple of weeks ago, and Geraldine who I knew was lovely and wrote a beautiful note in the book. So I have horse and I'm hoping, Caro, the new Jock Sarong arrives. Oh, that I yeah. Get a, that I get a pre, uh, re, pre-publishing pre reading copy 
text media, if you're listening, please send me a copy of the settlement because I'd love to take that away too. Yes, I've got to just work my list, work it down to about three or four, I think. Um, Caro, should it be mandatory to wear a tie in federal parliament? Look, it does seem a bit of an archaic rule, but I can understand that sometimes symbolic rules like this, well, they should create some semblance of respectability and good behaviour. And although I can see why many people would say it's a silly rule and obviously there are women in parliament and they they also have a dress standard they need to adhere to, I think that if it's a rule, I don't know why you would break it. I don't think it's asking too much. Maybe I'm sounding a bit conservative here, as obviously we know a member of the Green, senior member of the Greens party did. I had similar views about Centre Court at Wimbledon. Why would Nick Curios not, you know, it, it's their rules. It might be crazy. Argue behind the scenes to fix it. Don't just blatantly defy it and in, in doing so, you know, promote one of your sponsorship products. So I can understand that rule. Corrie, what word did you hear the other day that took you back to your 15-year-old 1970s teenage self? Well, you were actually there. It was the 3AW commentary box on Saturday and Lee Matthews, your co-panellist, said he loved the way Collingwood scunges the ball. <laughs> and I thought... I remember scunge. Do you remember scunge? Yes, So the official scungy. definition... Yeah, well, the official definition, because I looked it up and thought, oh, is it a word? It, a person who is mean with their money. But I can remember at school, we used to say things like, oh, don't be a scunge, share your chips or... Your yes. sunny boy or your bag of mixed lollies. She's so scungy. He's such a scunge. I love it. I haven't heard it for years, since 1975, I reckon. And, Cara, no amazing facts this week, but I did want to ask you as the final question, what have you stopped buying as a result of inflation? Well, I think everybody has changed their buying habits to a degree and I'm going, I've decreed from since I got back from being away, I certainly didn't follow this rule when I was away, not every day anyway, but sometimes by necessity I did just one coffee a day now. Because, yes. you know, it really, if you're looking at $5 or $4.50 and sometimes more, I just think one coffee a day is, um, you and I broke that rule when we finally caught up last Friday morning for a proper chat away from the podcast. Not that we don't have proper chats on the podcast, but um, since then I'm a one coffee a day girl. That is a very good advice because $10 a day, as we know, that ends up being $70 a week. And beans are pretty good value at the moment too, just saying. And <laughs> oh, go, and iceberg lettuce has come down a dollar. And go to the Paran market on Sundays. There was, although even the bargains there are not what they were. Corrie, it's been wonderful to see you this week. Thank you to our podcast supporters, Red Energy, and to Prince Wine Store. And remember, we want you to join us at our movie night next Tuesday, August 16, 5 o'clock at Cinema Como for a 5.30 flick. The first three people who email Miss Jane on our Don't Shoot the Messenger website, so that is feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au, will receive double passes to the movie. So the first three, feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Remember, this is a socially distanced event, so there will be plenty of room for you to see the movie in comfort. Um, part proceeds of the evening, of course, go to the Breast Cancer Network Australia. You can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, hit the sign up button on Facebook or in our show notes or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. And Corrie, don't shoot the messenger. 
This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.